Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And uh, before we get started, a quick plug for Constitution Weekly, our thrilling new weekly roundup of constitutional news and debate. Please sign up if you haven't already. Go to bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. That's bit.ly Constitution Weekly. Now, on today's show, we explore the most important constitutional question of the moment, and that involves the history and constitutionality of the filibuster. Uh, earlier this week, the week that we're recording, Senate Democrats announced that they have enough votes to sustain a filibuster of the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch. We're recording this episode before the vote, but it is widely expected that Senate Republicans may amend Senate rules to allow a simple majority to end the filibuster. And by the time you hear this podcast, the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations may be a matter of history. Is the filibuster an integral part of the Senate's role and character, or is it an impediment to a functional legislature? Does it violate the Constitution? Joining me to dig into these important historical and constitutional questions are America's two leading experts on the history and constitutionality of the filibuster. Richard Arenberg teaches international and public affairs at Brown University and is co-author of Defending the Filibuster, the Soul of the Senate. And Josh Chaffetz is professor of law at Cornell Law School and author of The Unconstitutionality of the Filibuster. Rich, Josh, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having us. My, yeah, my pleasure to be here. All right, Josh, let us jump right into the history of the filibuster. In your article, The Unconstitutionality of the Filibuster, which listeners can check out online, you argue that the longstanding historical pedigree of the filibuster is not an obstacle to its constitutionality. We'll talk about the constitutional arguments later, but the filibuster began being exercised in the Senate in the early 19th century. Tell us about how it began and how it evolved over time. Well, sure. And part of the, the issue here is a definitional one. What exactly do we mean when we talk about the filibuster? Um, and so there is a tradition uh, dating back to the earliest days of the Senate, a tradition of, of unlimited debate. That is to say, you didn't uh, stop someone from speaking who wanted to speak. Uh, and that there was, in fact, uh, really no mechanism for, for stopping people from speaking in the Senate until uh, 1917, when the cloture mechanism was, was first created. So there was a tradition that people got to sort of speak for as long as they wanted to. I would argue, though, that that hasn't characterized the filibuster since uh, about the middle of the, the 20th century. I would say that when we talk today about the filibuster, we're really talking about a right of unrestricted minority obstruction. And that's been the case uh, since about uh, the, the, the 1970s. Um, and and so uh, you know today when something's being filibustered right we don't generally see as a senator holding the floor we don't generally see speeches at all and essentially what we see is that nothing gets passed unless it has at least 60 votes um, uh, now, I would say that there is, in fact, uh, really no historical pedigree for that, that, that um, uh, even once the, the cloture motion was adopted in the, in the beginning of the 20th century in 1917, it really was almost never used uh, and then picks up uh, a little bit with the civil rights struggles. For a long time, it was basically only used for civil rights legislation, or rather to say used against civil rights legislation. Uh, and then in the 1970s, it starts to become this standing supermajority requirement. So I would say there really is no... Uh, uh, long-standing historical pedigree, at least if by long-standing you mean dating back uh, more than more than about 40 uh, to 50 years, uh, no long-standing historical pedigree for what the filibuster has become in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Rich, do you agree or do you believe that the fact that it was in 1806 that the Senate dropped the rule allowing a motion for the previous question has allowed senators to filibuster since 1806, and that therefore the filibuster has a longer historical pedigree. Well, I, I mean, I think I think uh, that that's true. I mean, I think most of the uh, points along the way that uh, that Josh mentioned uh, were were uh, correct. His characterization of it as not being a part of the pedigree of the Senate, I would take issue with. 
and uh, I think it really, it, it really goes back to the founding of the Senate, I would say, in uh, 1789, uh, because there was a previous question motion. Uh, but there's pretty good scholarship that, that it was rarely used, just used a handful of times, and that it did not operate in the way that we normally think of. In the House of Representatives, for example, uh, uh, that motion uh, leads to uh, uh, an, end, the, an end to the debate and uh, final, a vote on final passage. Uh, in the Senate's early usage, uh, what it uh, was used for was to de delay the, uh, the final up or down vote. But it's, it is clear that in 1806, uh, the Senate uh, dropped that previous motion uh, completely. And as uh, Josh said, really from 1806 until they adopted the cloture uh, 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 mechanism, uh, which was itself a compromise, between those people who wanted to uh, continue unlimited debate and those people who wanted to just go to a simple majority previous question. Uh, Rule 22, as we know it, uh, or as it was passed then, it was, it was a two-thirds vote rather than 60. Uh, that, that was a compromise. Uh, but from 1806 until that was passed in 1917, there was, in fact, uh, no way to end debate in the Senate unless and until uh, senators were uh, all ready to vote and, and were prepared to vote. Uh, I, I, you know, I agree with Josh that, uh, 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 that there is a definitional problem with filibuster. I think uh, I find that uh, most people, when uh, their only real clear picture of the filibuster uh, grows out of Mr. Smith goes to Washington and the idea of, uh, of debate on the floor. But uh, the, uh, the supermajority requirement has been a part of the Senate's uh, DNA, really, going back to, uh, you know, more, uh, 100 years now. And uh, the way I often explain that is uh, through uh, my own experience. I spent 34 years on Capitol Hill uh, working for three uh, different uh, Democratic senators. And I, uh, in, in all of those years, uh, every single time that I brought any one of those three senators a proposal for an amendment or a piece of legislation to file, uh, or a resolution, anything of that sort, the very first question I got without fail uh, was, who's my Republican co-sponsor? And that's not a question you would hear in the House of Representatives, where only the majority matters. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I see this mechanism, I see the filibuster as a part of the uh, found the the uh, uh, the pillars uh, of the Senate, which are uh, unlimited debate and unfettered amendment, and the and and those things uh, protect the minority in the legislative process, uh, which is the the uh, central characteristic of the Senate. And if we were to do away with the filibuster. Uh, that would be gone. Great. Thank you so much for that. We've learned an important date, which is March 1917, when President Woodrow Wilson championed uh, a rule, the cloture rule, which would allow debate to be ended by a two-thirds vote. And we've heard about the history. Um, Josh, I want you to respond to Rich's point that two-thirds um, majorities have been part of the Senate's DNA from the beginning. I heard you say that stuff evolved in the 19th century, and it's clear that there was a period, it was in the right before the Civil War, that filibustering was first used to connote legislative obstruction. It was 1853, uh, a group of Southern uh, senators who were uh, focusing on the slavery question. And by 1863, the practice of blocking legislation by extended debate had been called a filibuster, a word that comes from the word for piracy. So, so what about Rich's claim that certainly since the mid-19th uh, century, 
uh, you really have needed a supermajority support to end debate. Uh, well, again, I, I think we want to differentiate between, in talking about Senate traditions, differentiate between unlimited debate on the one hand, or the ability of members to sort of speak as much as they want to speak on an issue, and outright obstruction on the other. So, um, I mean, we can go back much earlier than anything we've talked about. Actually, we can find the earliest rules, for example, in the uh, English Parliament against obstructive tactics from the very beginning of the 17th century. Um, Thomas Jefferson, who as vice president was, of course, the, the um, uh, president of the Senate uh, and, and compiled uh, his famous manual of parliamentary practice. One of the rules that he put into his manual of parliamentary practice was no one is to speak impertinently or beside the question superfluously or tediously. Um, uh, uh, it's true that the previous question motion in the Senate was abolished at the very beginning of the 19th century, but it's also true that uh, most studies of the filibuster don't identify a single Senate filibuster as occurring uh, for, for several decades after that. In fact, not until the, the 1830s. Um, as you said, the, the word comes into use uh, in the um, uh, in the 1850s and, and 1860s, but throughout the 19th century, it was widely understood that the House of Representatives was actually the house where the, the chamber where more obstruction occurred. So, uh, in in 1884, uh, Senator Richard Cook, uh, a senator from Texas, uh, said on the floor of the Senate, uh, he said, it's, "It is well known that bills are passed much more rapidly and with much more facility through the Senate than through the House, on account of the difference in the constitution of the two bodies: the one small and compact, and the other large and unwieldy." Um, and then uh, as this uh, as the sort of obstruction in the House of Representatives becomes a big deal, you get significant reforms. You get the adoption in the House of the procedure known as the special rule, which is how House business still occurs today. Uh, you get the, the, the Reed rules uh, in uh, uh, 1890, which is could be understood as sort of the first example of going nuclear, although, of course, they didn't have that terminology in the 19th century. Um, uh, and it's only sort of after the House then becomes a much more efficient body that uh, concern uh, turns to the Senate. And in the early 20th century, now that the House has sort of uh, uh, made its business so much more efficient, that's when concern begins to grow with with um, uh, obstruction in the Senate. And that's when you get the, the cloture rule in, in 1917. And it's worth noting the reason that um, – uh, Woodrow Wilson is so uh, behind the cloture rule in, uh, when it's first adopted is because a filibuster had taken down uh, an attempt to uh, a, a bill that would have allowed merchant ships to arm themselves against German U-boat attacks in World War One. Uh, so this the 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 uh, filibuster uh, with no mechanism of cutting off debate by the early 20th century was seen as a threat to national security in that regard. But it's still the case that super there isn't really a supermajority requirement. So for example. Um, uh, in the, the first decade that the filibuster existed, from 1919 to 1929, there were only a total, in that entire decade, 11 cloture motions filed, and cloture was only invoked four times. Over the next four decades, so from 1929 to 1959, cloture was never once invoked. Now, it's not that no legislation was passed in that time. I mean, the entire New Deal was passed in that time. It's just that uh, 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 the minority didn't use unlimited debate to indefinitely obstruct, and therefore, even though cloture was available, it was never used. Uh, you just do, you don't see cloture really becoming uh, important, which is to say you don't see the filibuster being used as indefinite obstruction uh, until uh, 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 really until the middle of the 20th century when civil rights bills begin to be filibustered, um, uh, right? So every major civil rights bill of the 20th century had to overcome a filibuster. So you see cloture for that. And then in the 1970s, you see this takeoff where cloture is required now for absolutely everything. So that when we, again, when we say the filibuster today, we don't mean unlimited debate, right? When something is being filibustered, there actually is no debate going on on the Senate floor about that matter. Really what we mean when we talk about the filibuster today is unlimited minority obstruction. Now, what Rich is right about, absolutely right, is that unlimited minority, the, the right of the minority to obstruct indefinitely does mean that for things to pass, you, you almost always are going to need at least some buy-in from the minority party. Uh, so the question, I think, again, is not one about unlimited debate. It's about whether you want to have a standing rule in the Senate that the minority party can block uh, anything uh, that it wants to forever. Um, and uh, so that, I think, then gets us into this, uh, this, this sort of second question, which is less about the history of the filibuster and more about the desirability uh, of its current effects.
That's great. And we'll talk about the desirability and the constitutionality in a second. But, Rich, could you respond, please, to Josh's interesting point? He says, if the minority rule is built into the Senate's DNA, it's not historically because of the filibuster, because it's not really until the 60s and 70s that the filibuster began to be used for uh, indefinite minority obstruction. And if, uh, in that sense, are there other uh, ways that we might protect uh, minority rights that are short of this, what Josh claims is a relatively newly minted uh, right of indefinite minority obstruction? Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly would agree that uh, the uh, ability to filibuster and the use of uh, the cloture mechanism, and of course, uh, uh, in the in the discussion, these two things really sort of get conflated. In fact, most of the charts you see uh, that uh, are attempting to uh, show the great increase in filibusters over uh, recent times are actually showing the increase in the number of uh, uh, cloture uh, votes that have occurred and. It's both true that you sometimes uh, have cloture filed even in the absence of a filibuster for uh, uh, reasons we can get into. Uh, and other times you actually have a filibuster going on and uh, uh, no, no uh, cloture petition is actually filed, but what you have is a negotiation between the parties and uh, some resolution of the problem that was leading to that filibuster uh, in the first place. Uh, so, you know, I do think that the rule is being abused. Of course, we're seeing that with a lot of mechanisms uh, uh, in our uh, uh, national legislature. Uh, as you know, the underlying problem is the uh, hyperpartisan polarization that we're experiencing uh, in our in our uh, uh, political life and reflected uh, in this in the Senate, uh, the minority has been abusing the filibuster. I would acknowledge the majority, in turn, uh, has been abusing the mechanisms like filling the amendment tree to try to keep the minority from being able to. Uh, uh, offer its amendments. Uh, my uh, uh, argument has been, however, that uh, if what you're worried about is uh, uh, obstruction and hyperpartisanship, then the the, uh, the solution isn't to rewire uh, the Senate's roles. Uh, Josh, at one point, referred to the efficiency of the House of Representatives. Well. Uh, I don't think what the uh, founders were looking for, particularly with respect to the U.S. Senate, uh, was legislative efficiency. And I think the problem is that if you eliminate the filibuster in the Senate, uh, quickly you would see those mechanisms uh, develop like the Rules Committee in the House. It would, might not be uh, a Rules Committee per se in the Senate, but uh, power would uh, 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 devolve to the uh, majority leader and the majority party would take those steps necessary to take control over the legislative function, that is uh, debate and uh, amendment. And so what I often like to say to people is if you think the way to get uh, to, to, to break out of gridlock in the Senate uh, is to eliminate the filibuster, you best be in love with the way the House of Representatives does business. And that is that largely the minority party is not a player. Great. Fascinating. Well, let's hold the constitutional question for one more beat, uh, Josh, because Rich has basically said eliminating the filibuster would not be desirable. It would make the House like the Senate and would uh, eliminate the deliberation that has been part of the Senate's uh, DNA. Uh, as we speak, the, the filibuster may already have been eliminated. Do you believe it is desirable? And if not, is there some other way of achieving uh, bipartisan comedy in a polarized age? Um, so I, I do not believe that the filibuster is is desirable. Um, 
but I guess you know one thing I, I do want to uh, sort of respond to the the uh, you know we we keep using this metaphor of the the DNA of the Senate, um, and that sort of has this uh, uh, implication of inevitability, right? We think that you know DNA is basically determinative of at least you know certain features of an of an organism, and I just don't think that's true. And that's why I, I'm uh, of the of 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 sort of uh, Senate or House procedures. That's why I'm so uh, interested in this uh, line. Uh, from Senator Cook from 1884, uh, sorry, Senator Koch from 1884, where he said, you know, it's well known that bills are passed much more easily through the Senate than through the House. And he says, you know, it's on account of the difference in the constitution of the two bodies, one small and compact and the other large and unwieldy. And so he's saying the same thing, but exactly the other way around, right? What he's, what Cook is, what Cook is saying in, in 1884 is, of course, the Senate is the more efficient legislative body because it's smaller and compact. And of course, the House is uh, large and unwieldy because it has so many more members. It seemed just as natural to him that the Senate would be the more efficient uh, chamber uh, that it, uh, as it does today to us that the House is the more uh, efficient chamber. These rules, th these these chambers change their procedures. They change their rules over time. And I would say that the sort of pattern that we've seen uh, throughout American history is that when various tactics uh, that maybe were not developed to be tactics of minority obstruction, but when those tactics get used for minority obstruction to such an extent that it completely frustrates the majority's ability to get things done, then we see reform of those tactics. So that's what we saw in the 1880s and 1890s in the House sort of culminating with the Reed rules. That's what we saw in 1917 with the adoption of cloture. That's what we saw in 1975 with the reduction in the um, uh, in the, the threshold for cloture. It's what we saw in 2013 uh, with the, the uh, uh, you know, so-called nuclear option for um, uh, for nominations other than to the Supreme Court. Uh, and it's likely to be what we're seeing this week uh, with the, the sort of trimming off of that one last kind of confirmation. Um, so I would say, you know, uh, uh, we shouldn't understand this as being governed by something like DNA. We should understand this as being uh, a sort of dynamic system in which uh, uh, minorities can have various uh, rights, and I think that's very important. Uh, but uh, when those rights get used, you know, Rich acknowledged that the that the minority has been abusing this uh, this uh, technique, uh, but they've been abusing it now for enough decades that I don't think we should be. Uh, I think now we can understand the filibuster as indefinite minority obstruction. It's no longer an abuse of the filibuster. It's just what the filibuster is now. And when tactics become that way uh, throughout American congressional history, um, uh, those tactics then get uh, then get paired back. Um, uh, so um, I think it is likely that as a result of this sort of uh, uh, rapidly increasing over the last couple of decades um, amount of minority obstruction in the Senate, that we are likely to see the Senate become somewhat more uh, like the House. At the same time, of course, the House is becoming a little bit more like the Senate, right? The the um, breakdown in majority party unity over the last, you know, six or seven years uh, 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 the, the, um, might be understood as a step uh, away from the sort of uh, absolute efficiency that characterized the House sort of reaching its zenith during the, the, the Gingrich speakership. Um, so I think these things are in constant flux and, and uh, it's a mistake to talk about it as being DNA or not DNA. I think there is a um, a, a sense in which uh, it is uh, useful to think in terms of minority rights. I think there are um, uh, important rights that we want the minority party and a legislature to have. I'm just not sure that it makes sense to create a rule uh, that requires minority party buy-in uh, for any deviation from the status quo ante. That seems to me to be too entrenching. Very interesting. Uh, Rich Josh just made the powerful point that minorities have rights, but when those rights deteriorate into indefinite minority obstruction, they have throughout American history been cut back. Uh, your response? Let, let me uh, go back for just a moment. Uh, uh, Josh quoted uh, uh, Senator Cook on the question of whether uh, 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 doing away with uh, uh, the filibuster or cloture rules uh, would be a, a, a good thing for the Senate. Uh, I'd like to quote a senator from uh, this week, Senator John McCain, one of the senior uh, uh, Republican senators and someone who has said that he intends to vote for the nuclear option uh, this week because of the circumstance they find themselves in. 
but uh, he was asked by a reporter, uh, and let me add, before I quote Senator McCain, let me underline that I'm, I'm uh, not accusing Josh of these things. Uh, I wouldn't use these terms to characterize him, but I'm, uh, I, I, I just want to emphasize how strongly Senator McCain uh, feels about this. Uh, he was asked by a reporter if uh, th this, this means the end of the Senate as we know it. Uh, and he said, he said, yes, I think it does. Uh, and the reason he gave was that it's a slippery slope and that uh, the, the next step will be to eliminate the filibuster on legislation. And it was pointed out to him that some people uh, in his uh, uh, caucus have made the argument that eliminating uh, the filibuster will actually be better for the Senate. And uh, Senator McCain's response was, I'd like to know who that numbskull, that idiot is, who thinks that. But let me, uh, uh, let me go on uh, to uh, say that, uh, 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 you know, as I've, as I've said, the, uh, uh, the filibuster has been abused in recent years, and over its history, one of the reasons why we didn't see uh, uh, um, many, many filibusters uh, actually take place and the requirement for many cloture votes uh, was that uh, it, it, its, its existence uh, uh, the existence of that possibility was often the trigger for negotiations. As I've said, sometimes uh, taken into consideration by senators before they even file legislation. Uh, but certainly uh, once it, it begins to move along in the legislative process, there's very uh, often that search for bipartisanship and it's always, and it's very often uh, uh, fueled by the need uh, to uh, to reach that uh, uh, that the that potential for needing a supermajority, uh, but for much of its history, and certainly when I first got to the Senate, uh, senators were very clear on the idea that uh, uh, restraint in its use and comedy were a very important factor uh, in uh, protecting the, the filibuster as an essential uh, tool in the Senate. And they often expressed it that way, that this was something that was to be uh, protected and, and uh, the, the notion that if it, if it was abused, if uh, senators went too far, that the, that the, this, that, uh, calls to do away with it might arise, which of course is what we're uh, seeing. Uh, but it's interesting that these calls, uh, uh, they're, they're uh, without, without fail, of course, the demands to do away with it are made by the majority party and the, and the, uh, the desire to protect those rules uh, by the minority party. And we sometimes, in the heat of the debate about it, it, it often gets characterized as kind of a partisan thing, but it's not. You know, I, I often quote uh, Nelson Mandela, who said, uh, where you uh, stand depends on where you sit. And this is particularly true with the filibuster. Fascinating. All right. You have suggested, Rich, that the end of the nominations filibuster may lead to the end of the filibuster for ordinary legislation, and I do think it's now time to put the constitutional argument on the table here on the We the People podcast. So listeners, I mentioned that Josh has a great piece called The Unconstitutionality of the Filibuster that you can check out online and should. And in it, Josh, you argue that Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution, which says that every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives, suggests uh, that uh, the filibuster is unconstitutional. Tell us about how the word passed 
uh, filters into your argument as well as the word determine in the rules of proceedings clause and the word consent in the appointments clause and why you believe that the filibuster is unconstitutional. Great, thanks. So, uh, so I should say that um, uh, you know my, my argument there isn't that somehow the you know the the the, the dictionary definition of passed or, or determined or consent uh, uh, requires a majority vote, uh, but it's rather the the, the argument there um, uh, uh, proceeds from a, a sort of argument by analogy. So. Um, in addition to having the power to, you know, pass legislation or confirm nominees or do things like that, uh, the the Senate another power that it has uh, is the power to judge the elections of its own members. So if there's a contested uh, election to the Senate, um, the the Senate has the power to uh, uh, investigate and to to pick the winner, uh, to decide who won the election. So um, uh, so here's my my sort of hypothetical, and this is you know standard law professor trick. We, we uh, pose hypotheticals and then reason from them. Um, so, so here's my hypothetical rule. Suppose the Senate passes a rule that says, in any election to this body in which a current senator seeks re-election, the current senator shall be deemed re-elected unless 60% or more of the duly qualified voters cast their votes for another candidate. Right? So saying basically, you need 60% uh, of the vote, not just a bare majority, to defeat a sitting senator. Uh, now, there's no clear piece of constitutional text that says that the person who gets the most votes has to win an election. Uh, in fact, all the 17th Amendment says is that the Senate shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof, um, and that the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors to the most numerous branch of the state legislature. But the, the, the 17th Amendment, or and indeed nowhere else in the Constitution, does it say that the candidate who gets the most votes has to win. And yet, I think we would clearly regard the the hypothetical Senate rule that I just uh, uh, I just described as unconstitutional because we think that elected has within it, uh, in this context, an implicit majoritarian premise. We don't think it's uh, you know to 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 um, quote the famous uh, uh, constitutional theorist John Hart Ely. We think there's a special problem when the ins get to decide who stays out, right? So with the entrenchment of power by the powerful, we think is a special problem. Um, well, my view is that the uh, filibuster for legislation, indeed the filibuster for anything, is functionally the equivalent of that hypothetical Senate rule I just gave you. Sure, it doesn't entrench legislators, but it does entrench legislation. Um, and, the, and in the same way, it allows uh, sort of the dead hand of the past to, to control the future. So uh, my view is that if we wouldn't allow uh, 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 senators to entrench themselves in office, except by uh, a supermajority vote to get them out, uh, then we shouldn't allow them to entrench what they do in office, uh, uh, except by supermajority vote to get it out. Um, so, uh, so, so my view is that that uh, sort of thinking of it that way gives us enough reason to to sort of understand that the the self entrenching nature uh, of the filibuster uh, 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 is inconsistent with sort of what we what we think of as as the basic principles and ideas um, uh, underlying our constitutional order. So that is my sort of uh, uh, argument in a nutshell. And, uh, you know, I go into a, a lot more detail in the article, of course, but but that's my argument in a nutshell for why uh, uh, we wouldn't want to uh, think that the, the filibuster is consistent with our Constitution. Uh, many thanks for that. Uh, Rich, what is your response to Josh's argument that the filibuster is unconstitutional? Josh is a is a uh, is an eminent uh, uh, law professor, and uh, uh, I respect the point of view uh, that he's put forward. It's a very uh, eloquent argument. Uh, my argument is really much simpler. Uh, I look to Article One, Section Five of the Constitution, which provides that each House of the Congress may determine the rules of its proceedings, that the Senate gets to write its own rules. And uh, uh, it's, it seems to me that that uh, clause in the Constitution, uh, if it did not go to rules about uh, uh, debate and amendment, uh, would really have no meaning at all. And uh, this question has been uh, 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 tested in uh, the courts in that uh, uh, common cause a few years ago uh, made the argument in, in the district court that uh, in, in common cause v. Biden, I believe it was, uh, that the filibuster was unconstitutional. 
the district court judge, uh, Judge Sullivan, uh, in his uh, uh, decision deciding against common cause, uh, actually wrote that nowhere does the Constitution contain express requirements regarding the proper length of or method for the Senate to debate proposed legislation. And the DC Circuit Court upheld that decision and the Supreme Court ref refused to hear an appeal. Uh, so I make a very simple argument. I think the, the, the plain reading of the Constitution itself empowers the Senate uh, to, uh, uh, to write its own rules and it has done so and has protected that rule now for a century. Uh, well, let me, let, let me leave it there. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, Josh, response to the argument about Article 1, Section 5. Uh, yeah, so, so two quick points. Um, uh, so on the common cause uh, v. Biden uh, argument, you're, you're, um, you're absolutely right. What, although what I would add is that uh, when the D.C. Circuit affirmed that opinion, um, uh, what the D.C. Circuit said is uh, not uh, anything about the merits of the, the constitutionality of the filibuster. Instead, what it said is that the filibuster that the, uh, is non-justiciable. In other words, that this issue, regardless of the merits, is not one that the courts should be deciding. And that's something, in fact, that I argue as well in um, uh, in, in the, the article uh, that, that Jeff mentioned. Uh, in fact, that article's cited all over the, the um, Common Cause v. Biden opinion in the D.C. Circuit for precisely this point, uh, that um, uh, I don't think this is an issue to be decided by the courts. I want to be very clear about that. As to the rule of, Rules of Proceedings Clause uh, more generally, you're right, it does give uh, each House of Congress the uh, authority to make to determine the rules of its own proceedings, and that is a broad power. Um, I would note that, that the same uh, argument would apply uh, exactly to the hypothetical rule I came up with, right? Because uh, I've, it, it's, it's written as a rule for how uh, the Senate would go about uh, uh, judging the elections of its own members. So if the Rules of Proceedings Clause is broad enough, is sufficiently plenary to allow um, uh, to the, for the filibuster, then it should also be sufficiently plenary to allow for the rule, the hypothetical rule that I gave. Uh, but more broadly, I would just say that there are lots of powers in the Constitution that are uh, perhaps not limited by their own terms, but are limited by other things in the Constitution. So, uh, you know, to, to give another example, imagine that, that Congress passed a law uh, forbidding the interstate shipment of news magazines. Right. Now, this would clearly be uh, an exercise of Congress's undoubted power to regulate interstate commerce, but it still wouldn't be constitutional because it would violate the First Amendment. Uh, or to take a, another example that's perhaps a little bit closer to, to home, closer to what we're talking about, suppose the Senate adopted a rule that said um, uh, no Jews can serve on any committees. Um, now, that would be an exercise of its rulemaking power, uh, but it would clearly violate the religious test clause of the Constitution. Uh, so I would think it would be unconstitutional, even though by its own terms, the Rules of Proceedings Clause allows the const uh, allows each chamber to uh, uh, wide latitude to set its own rules. So what I would say is that this isn't an argument about the Rules of Proceedings Clause. We both agree that the Rules of Proceedings Clause gives the Senate the authority to pass its rules, um, but there are still other constitutional constraints that come in as side constraints. Uh, and my argument is that that the, the sort of principle, this, this foundational principle of, of, um, uh, of, of the ability of the majority to, to, to get its material through uh, actually uh, is one of those side constraints. Uh, great. So uh, last beat on the constitutionality, um, Rich Josh argues that uh, eliminating the filibuster is not a matter for Article Three courts, but should instead be addressed to constitutionally conscientious senators uh, who should eliminate the filibuster uh, themselves. So if, if you were trying to argue to them against the claim that the filibuster is unconstitutional, uh, Josh has just said there's an independent constraint on the Senate's ability to make its rules, and that's this uh, anti-entrenchment rule. So what, what, what's your final point on the, on the constitutional claim? Well, I, I certainly agree with Josh that the, that the courts should not decide. Uh, and I think as a practical matter, uh, they, uh, they won't interfere in the Senate's uh, uh, rules. Uh, and in terms of arguing to senators that it's constitutional, uh, in the entire, uh, over the entire history of this in the Senate, 
although arguments have uh, often been made uh, to, to uh, reform the filibuster, generally leading to some sort of uh, compromise, some sort of compromise reforms, uh, it has been very rare, extremely rare, uh, for any senator to make the argument that the filibuster is unconstitutional. In fact, in this whole recent debate that has spanned uh, this last decade, uh, the only senator I can think of who has was Tom Harkin. And, uh, and, at, and at other times during the same decade, he, he uh, defended the, the uh, constitutionality of the Senate. So uh, uh, I, I, I don't think that as a, as a practical matter in the Senate itself, that the constitutionality of the filibuster rule has uh, ever been in, uh, in question. And uh, I think that applies to the, the uh, current debate. I think uh, I've described it in an, in an uh, op-ed piece as the Senate entering into a death spiral. And the reason I see it that way is because I believe that there are a significant number of members of the Republican caucus who uh, don't want to uh, vote for the uh, nuclear option. And there are a significant number of members of the Democratic caucus who don't want to press this filibuster in this particular instance. Uh, the reason it's a death spiral is because both sides appear to feel locked in by the uh, uh, the uh, intense uh, level of uh, feeling about this in the, the political sphere outside. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, so, Josh, in your piece, you say that the filibuster need not be replaced with a simple majority cloture rule. You suggest potential alternatives. What are they? Are they likely to be adopted? And if not, do you agree with Rich that the Senate may be entering into a death spiral? Um, so I think uh, you're absolutely right. So I, I, I do argue that it, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? It doesn't have to be a choice between the possibility of indefinite minority obstruction on the one hand, uh, uh, or um, uh, uh, sort of uh, current House of Representatives style um, uh, regime on the other hand. I think there could be things like um, uh, one thing might be something uh, that, that uh, the scholar Gerard Melioka called a, a suspensive uh, filibuster, and this is actually modeled on the House of Lords in the UK, where they can uh, stop something from going forward for a certain amount of time, uh, but they can't actually prevent it from going forward. Um, so they can, uh, and, and that really is a sort of deliberation-forcing device, right? You can slow things down, but you can't if the if the if the House of Commons is determined uh, uh, to 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 get something uh, passed into law, then it can do it over the objections of the House of Lords. It just takes longer. So you could have something similar in the Senate, right? A, a, a group of 40 senators could uh, 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 trigger a procedure that would make things take a little bit longer, perhaps, uh, but at the end of that time, uh, you could have majority rule. You could also have something like, a, uh, it's called, sometimes called a declining filibuster, where with each successive uh, cloture vote, the, the threshold for achieving cloture would go down by, say, two senators until the point at which it reached majority rule. Both of these would be ways of slowing things down, of ensuring that there was actually adequate opportunity for debate, but they wouldn't be ways of allowing the minority to obstruct indefinitely. Uh, as for whether they're plausible, I don't see a ton of interest on either side of the aisle right now. Uh, so I'd, I certainly wouldn't suggest that they're plausible in the in the short term uh, or perhaps even medium term. Um, uh, although there was, uh, you know, it, it didn't go anywhere. But um, Senator Alexander at the uh, about the halfway point of the previous Congress, at the point when the the uh, results of the 2016 elections were still very much unknown, and when it was uh, plausible to members of both parties actually that, that that their their party might control the Senate or might not control the Senate uh, uh, after January. Uh, uh, 2017, um, uh, Senator Alexander was, uh, and, and a few of his Republican colleagues were trying to talk about ways that they could uh, 
reform the rules uh, with what's called a sunrise provision. Uh, that is to say, reform the rules in the previous Congress, but they wouldn't take effect until the next Congress. And the idea is, you know, in a situation like that where everybody's operating behind behind a kind of veil of ignorance, uh, people might be less motivated by partisan concerns and more motivated by institutional concerns. Because if you just don't know if you're going to be in the minority or the majority, it's hard to make arguments that favor you uh, in in that way. So uh, any of these reform proposals, I think. Uh, in the medium term, at least, could be plausible if, if members are willing to sort of think creatively about ways of, of getting people on board without knowing uh, exactly who's going to be uh, benefited. Um, as to the question of whether uh, um, uh, the Senate is, is sort of locked in a death spiral, uh, I, uh, to be honest, well, I, I have to admit I'm, I'm not entirely sure exactly what a death spiral means. Um, again, I think the pattern we see sort of throughout American history is that when is that chambers, uh, the sort of uh, ability to obstruct goes up and it goes down. So, you know, again, uh, late 19th century, obstruction's really high in the House. Uh, then you get the reforms under Speaker Reed. Uh, 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 obstruction drops precipitously. Uh, it drops so much that, that the, the Senate, uh, sorry, that the House, uh, by the time of uh, Speaker Cannon in the first decade uh, of the 20th century, is is regarded as being just completely under the heel of the Speaker. That, that basically everything the Speaker wants immediately goes through. Uh, that itself leads to its own backlash. And there's the progressive-led revolt against Speaker Cannon um, uh, in in 1910. Um, and that leads to to a lessening of the speaker's power. Uh, so the speaker, the the control of the rules committee was actually taken away from the speaker at that point, uh, and various other reforms. Uh, so I think you know you see cycles and epicycles. You see rising and falling and sort of amounts of centralization uh, in both chambers throughout American history. I think we're at a moment right now where obstruction in the Senate had gotten so extreme. Uh, that the backlash against it has is growing and and is cresting and it may uh, you know it's it's resulted in the elimination of the filibuster for uh, almost all nominations by the end of this week probably by uh, all nominations um, uh, I think it may well result in the elimination of the filibuster for the um, uh, for legislation as well uh, McConnell has said this week that he doesn't uh, uh, want to do that he said it won't happen under his uh, uh, leadership. Um, but I could imagine him changing his mind on that, um, or I could imagine a future majority leader saying, well, if we've already eliminated it for uh, nominations, uh, then why not for legislation? Now, obviously, this is uh, Rich's nightmare. This, For me, this is actually uh, not, not a particularly bad thing. Rich, tell us more about why it is your nightmare. What precisely does it mean for the Senate to be in a death spiral if it's essentially majoritarian? And in practice, if the uh, legislative filibuster as well is eliminated, what might the Senate look like? Well, I think the Senate will look very much like the House of Representatives. And I, uh, I, I disagree with Josh. I mean, I mean he, may, he, he, he posits some uh, very eloquent uh, compromises, and, and many of them have been out there before. Uh, the one about the gradually reducing uh, cloture levels. Uh, 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 again, Senator Harkin had put that uh, forward. Uh, in a couple of previous Congresses, uh, uh, I call it the ratchet proposal. Uh, but I think as a practical matter, where we are is it, it, it is going to be an all or nothing game. And we need to understand what this uh, thing that we've labeled a nuclear option, and I'm, I'm, I think it's unfortunate that it's been given that kind of popular label because once you have a name for things, it's much easier to do it. Uh, people kind of see the nuclear option as just some alternative switch that you switch. And, and so if you can do it and, and need 60 votes, or you can do it and need a simple majority. Uh, and by the way, that's often reported as 51, but it's not. It's a simple majority. So it could be as few as 26 senators uh, since a quorum is 51. I mean, that situation would probably never occur, but it certainly could be less than 51. Uh, but I think we, we need to look at the nuclear option, which in fact uh, has been nothing more than a, a parliamentary uh, ploy, which was used to get into a situation where the rule, that a precedent could be established by reinterpreting uh, the existing rule. It didn't change the rule. Uh, rule 22 is still intact, 
But in what the uh, Democrats did in November of 2013, when they uh, 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 created the simple majority filibuster on lower court nominations, is they interpreted the, world, the words of Rule 22, three-fifths duly chosen and sworn, they interpreted those rules as, those words as meaning a simple majority. And I like to say, you don't need to be a math whiz or an English major to recognize that that is pretty ridiculous. Uh, and, uh, uh, but what it, what it means is that uh, once you're on this slippery slope and the majority can do that, uh, uh, essentially by fiat, uh, you can change rule. The majority can change the rules at will, much as they can in the House of Representatives. And so uh, I think that slippery, that slippery slope goes all the way down to the bottom. And what you wind up with is a majoritarian Senate. And I happen to think that, that, is a, uh, that that's a disaster for our uh, for the, the, the way our American democracy has uh, functioned, but I recognize that other people see it uh, differently. All right, one uh, substantive point and then closing arguments. Josh, uh, what of Rich's point that a majoritarian Senate would be a disaster? You've said that this has ebbed and flowed, but have we ever before in American history had a majoritarian Senate and House? Uh, are we more polarized now than we've ever been, or has this version of a polarized majoritarian House and Senate existed before in American history? Um, so, I, I mean, we we certainly have had periods where functionally the House and the Senate were both majoritarian. I mean, again, the the fact that um, uh, cloture was so infrequently invoked for the first uh, five decades of its existence means that most, uh, almost everything during that period was passed uh, through the Senate by majority vote, um, and 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 the same was was true uh, in the House at that point. Um, we are uh, uh, certainly, or at least as of a few years ago, were at um, a sort of local high in American history in terms of polarization. Um, I'm not sure that anything in um, uh, cameral rules is necessarily going to 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 affect that, right? I mean, the increase in polarization might actually be all the more reason that you would want majoritarian rule in both chambers on the grounds that you're simply not likely to get minority buy-in for much of anything in a, a situation of extreme polarization. Um, but I would I would push back just a little bit on on Rich's claim that that. Um, that essentially the Senate will become the functional equivalent of the House of Representatives um, uh, if if uh, uh, if the chamber is uh, majoritarian uh, for for two reasons. Uh, one is the length of the term, right? I think um, uh, having a six-year term instead of a two-year term uh, creates a different kind of outlook. It creates uh, less necessity. Um, uh, sort of constantly gratifying uh, the the immediate public um, uh, mood, uh, and of course the fact that they have uh, in almost every state uh, uh, larger geographically larger numerically larger constituencies, and that those constituencies can't be gerrymandered, right? So obviously there's no partisan gerrymandering for the Senate because everybody represents uh, the entirety of his or her state, uh, and uh, in every state that has. Um, uh, um, uh, more than one uh, House district, the Senate, uh, the senators also represent more people, uh, and therefore a sort of wider variety of interests. I think those both have something of a moderating tendency of their own. Um, but it is true that if you uh, eliminate uh, uh, the filibuster in in the Senate, it will become in some ways more like the House. Um, uh, again, I, I don't see that as being particularly problematic insofar as what that means is that the party in which the uh, majority of the public has chosen to repose its trust uh, is actually able to pass its agenda through the chamber. Great. Last substantive point and then closing arguments. Rich response to Josh's claim that not a bad thing for uh, the majority to be able to wreak its will. Uh, we've seen it before in American history, and if things are really polarized, then uh, majority uh, buy-in might be good rather than bad. Well, uh, I mean, I, I I see as going to a majority Senate as uh, a, a factor which would which will uh, increase the polarization in the Senate. Uh, I do take the points that Josh made about the the differences between the House and the Senate in terms of terms, in terms of 
the nature of their constituencies. And I didn't mean to be saying that, uh, that, that policy outcomes would be identically the same coming out of the Senate as they came out of the House. In saying that the Senate would be another House, uh, I'm, I'm arguing that the, the majority party would be in complete control and begin to limit debate, begin to limit uh, amendment, and uh, I think we would no longer have this one element of this one branch of our system where uh, the minority uh, in legislative terms is, is uh, protected. And I think also that, uh, uh, and I mean, Josh has said these things kind of uh, go back and forth that uh, 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 in terms of uh, uh, how it, uh, uh, intensively the, the majority controls uh, one house or the other and how effective obstruction is in one house or the other. But I think if you look at history, uh, majorities, when they gain control, they don't give it back. And uh, uh, if you can imagine uh, uh, Speaker Paul Ryan uh, going into Nancy Pelosi's office and saying, you know, uh, we think in recent years the majority party has been a little unfair to the minority party in the House, and so we intend to give you a little more power in the father in the following ways. If you can uh, picture that, well, okay, but uh, but I can't, and I I believe that the same thing will happen uh, in the Senate. That once the majority gains control, uh, they will uh, uh, constrain the role of the minority, and I think that's an unfortunate thing. Uh, we often see the results of that. We have many states, I've forgotten the exact count now, but more than half the states uh, where uh, uh, the same party controls uh, both houses of the legislature and the governor's office. And in those states, we uh, uh, tend to see some pretty extreme, depending on uh, 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 which party you sit in, you might see what's extreme a little bit differently. Uh, but we tend to see uh, outcomes uh, swing back and forth uh, more wildly than, than I think we would want to see in our national legislature. Uh, but let me make one last point about supermajorities. You know, the uh, Rule 22 is not alone in this regard. Uh, for, uh, uh, when, when Congress passed the Budget Act of 1974, for example, it made uh, all of the uh, waivers of points of order under the Budget Act uh, supermajority, three-fifths votes. And uh, we have, I, I believe the count is now 26 states that have a supermajority uh, requirement uh, for uh, uh, at least some sorts of leg legislation. Uh, oftentimes, it's, uh, legisla it's tax legislation that requires a supermajority in some states. Uh, if, the, uh, uh, if the notion of, a, uh, of the filibuster is uh, unconstitutional because of that uh, supermajority cloture requirement, then, then all of these uh, other things would be unconstitutional as well. Uh, wonderful. Well, it is now time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, Josh, can you tell our listeners why you think the filibuster is unconstitutional and a bad idea and why its elimination is a good thing? Uh, sure. Well, I think it's it's uh, unconstitutional uh, and a bad idea because it allows uh, a small, uh, comparatively speaking, small majority uh, of the chamber to hold up the chamber's business uh, indefinitely. And, you know, a lot's been said about the importance of maintaining sort of some role for the minority. And I do think that's important. Uh, but it's important to remember that in our system, where the House, the Senate and the presidency each have their own independent uh, electoral mechanism, that is, they're all uh, elected in their own way, the uh, 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 divided government is the norm. That is to say, it is usually the case 
case that uh, Democrats will control at least one of those three mechanisms of power and Republicans will control at least one of those three uh, uh, sites of power. Um, that doesn't happen to be the case right now. Uh, but it is more often than not the case. When it is the case, the minority party in the Senate is going to be the party that controls either the House or the presidency uh, and therefore has its, uh, a way of checking uh, majoritarian impulses uh, that way. When it's not the case, when we're in periods of unified government, that actually suggests that the American people over sort of multiple electoral cycles and multiple elections have entrusted one party more than the other uh, with the reins of power, significantly more than the other. And in that situation, it seems to me perverse to have uh, a set of rules that say that the uh, 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 party that's been told across multiple election cycles across the country, essentially, uh, we don't trust you, uh, nevertheless can hold up uh, just about anything that the majority party uh, wants to do. So I think that um, it simply uh, uh, is a step too far uh, in empowering minorities uh, to let them hold things up indefinitely. And again, I want to be clear, I'm, I'm all in favor of certain kinds of minority rights. I'm all in favor of allowing uh, minorities to uh, truly, you know, in the chamber to truly uh, debate the merits of an issue uh, to, um, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in favor of things like allowing uh, minority parties uh, more power to uh, to subpoena witnesses and committees and things like that. Um, I think those would all be good things. But the power to indefinitely obstruct any particular piece of business doesn't strike me as a good thing. And it strikes me as fundamentally inconsistent with a basic uh, uh, sort of majority rules impulse that I think underlies uh, uh, in a very deep way our constitutional order. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Rich, last word to you. Why do you think the filibuster is both a good thing and constitutional and why its elimination would be a disaster? Well, let me go to that, first. Let me go to that last point first about uh, the majority rules uh, uh, notion and uh, the, the idea that, uh, uh, that divided government uh, often provides enough of a, of a restraint. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've said a lot about obstructionism. Just, let's just take a look at the, uh, uh, the uh, eight years of the Obama uh, presidency. For the last six years, where uh, government was divided, uh, he was essentially had to abandon the legislative process. Uh, quite famously went to executive actions and so forth. And the crowning jewel on this, uh, if we're talking about obstruction, is what the majority was able to do uh, in the last Congress where uh, the president nominated Garland to the Supreme Court and uh, in sort of the most uh, uh, blatant uh, form of obstructionism in a legislative body you could see, uh, the majority uh, uh, refused to even take that nomination up. They had the votes to defeat it. They had the, I, I think, the constitutional obligation uh, to at least hold hearings on it, uh, uh, but they uh, chose just to obstruct it and use their majority in that way. Uh, so. Uh, uh, the filibuster uh, is not the only uh, uh, majoritarian, I mean, uh, supermajority uh, mechanism that we have. The Constitution itself, by the way, uh, in, imposes uh, six different uh, supermajorities uh, on different, uh, uh, in order to get uh, different things uh, done. Uh, and uh, just to kind of wrap up on the question of constitutionality, I just want to repeat, I, I refer you to the plain, the plain language of Article 1, Section 5, where it says that the Senate uh, may determine uh, its own rules of proceedings. And uh, if, if that doesn't mean that the Senate gets to decide uh, the length of debate, the manner of debate, and uh, uh, the, the manner uh, uh, in which votes will take place, then I think it has no meaning at all. And it's hard to see why, why the, the framers would have included it. Thank you so much, 
Rich Ehrenberg and Josh Chaffetz for a truly illuminating, deep, and substantive discussion of this crucially important question of the constitutionality and policy arguments for and against the filibuster. Uh, we the People listeners, your homework is to read Josh's article, uh, The Unconstitutionality of the Filibuster, and Rich's book, Defending the Filibuster, as well as Article 1, Section 5, and Section 7, uh, and then you can be off and running. Rich, Josh, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Thanks for inviting us. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. And definitely sign up to receive Constitution Weekly. It's our great new weekly roundup of constitutional news and debate. And you can sign up at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, this is the serious and earnest part. Despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity and engagement and enthusiasm and passion for learning of people like you around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider going to the website, signing up, becoming a member, get our emails, and to support all of our work, including this podcast, visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.